Welcome back to MNK Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Kitty Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we finished the Winter Night Trilogy by Catherine Arden. We finished the last book, which was called The Winter of the Witch. The funny thing is, can I just say one thing about how this book ended? I think last week we were talking about how we felt like we could finish everything in 150 pages. Yeah. And we did. But I think that everything I thought was going to happen over 150 pages actually happened in like 75 pages. And Mm -hmm. then there was like almost a whole nother part of the story and ending that I wasn't even anticipating. But I'm so glad that we got. (laughs) Me too. I felt exactly the same way because we left off with Vasya saying that she wants to bind the bear with the golden bridle, right? Yep. And so I thought that was going to be like the main activity in this book and like the final hurdle yeah hurdle would be that they have to bind this bear and then that happened in 100 pages <laughs> the first 100 pages and we spent I think we spent half of the last episode talking about how much we wanted Constantine to die and how over him <laughs> we were and then I was kind of not disappointed but that also was like resolved relatively quickly and then we still had several chapters left and I was like what now <laughs> Okay, let's talk about, let's go right in and talk about Constantine's death. What did you think? Okay. Um, so what I love about this book, and I kind of was alluding to it just now, and I think I've mentioned it in the previous books, is I feel like she still writes these really kind of like dramatic scenes and she's not afraid to like take things places with people dying or like how things are resolved, but they're always so much faster than I expect. And it's almost like jarring while I'm reading it where I'm like, wait, he's just dead. Like, that's it. Like he's gone already. (laughs) So it it felt just like I was expecting it to be harder, but I did Mm -hmm. feel like it was an appropriate death. And I do, he didn't quite redeem himself by any means, but I do like that he started, like, he wasn't purely evil at the end either, sort of. Well, I don't know about whether or not he was, like, purely evil. I think it was just, I, I'm glad that he, this is so awful, but I'm glad that he died realizing what a fool he was. Yeah. Because, like, he was, like, led astray by the bear, and he believed pretty much everything this bear told him. And then you see, like, one by one, all of his faith in the bear start to crumble, like, He realizes that the bear lied to him about Vasya being dead. And then the real kicker was when the bear brings back all the dead people and Sergei the monk appears and he like makes the sign of the cross and all the dead crumble. And Constantine has this like horrible moment that I loved because I just want the worst things for him. Um, And he's like, oh my God. I was completely lied to because the bear told me that there was no God and clearly there is because this holy man came and like was able to banish all of the dead. And so like that moment where he realizes that there was a God the whole time and he just he turned his back on like the thing he pledged to devote his life to like that realization had to be super hard to come to terms with. And that's why he cuts his throat and commits suicide and I just thought it was a very appropriate ending for him. Well, and because he freaked out, right? And he kept accusing the bear of lying to him, which to be fair, he did. But I also loved, I forget the actual quote I'm trying to look for, but the bear says not that he was like, it's not so much that God exists as faith in God still exists. And he like made this distinction between the two. 
And we actually didn't dive into that a ton, but I thought that was like a really interesting line. And it almost reminded me of like the Polar Express or something where it's like, if you believe in Santa, like the belief in Santa, like makes him real sort of, or like, you know, faith in God is like as powerful as whether he's there or not. Like it's faith in him that makes it real. And it kind of is also true for all the demons Mm -hmm. because as people don't believe in them and don't, you know, give them bread and (laughs) other things to honor them, that's when they're fading. And it's sort of like, it was just kind of an interesting line about how powerful faith is in its own right. Yeah. And I think Constantine's realization that he completely turned his back on faith was what made him completely lose hope and, you know, want to end things. Yeah. But the one good thing was that his blood ended up binding the bear and Vasia was able to put the bridle on him. Yeah. So, and that's where I thought it was going to end. Um, <laughs> Me too. But then, no, we literally had 120 pages after that. Mm-hmm. 120 pages. That was like most of, we should have stopped there for the first half and then we would have had very different predictions because everything we predicted had already <laughs> But I like the way Vasya um, phrases it because she says, first I needed men to help me defeat a devil. So she needed like actual people to help her defeat the bear. And now she, and then she says, now I need devils to help me defeat men. Um, because now she's turning her attention towards the Tartars, General Chalube and these invaders. So... Yeah. It's like two separate wars. And it is, it was a cool parallel. And it also, I think, again, was just something that we kept talking about how we liked about this book. Like the scene with Constantine was very much like the folklore scene, right? We've got all the vampires, uppers, and we've got a bear man demon. And we've, you know, (laughs) I mean, like it felt very appropriate for the fantasy world, even though there were men there. And then the second, or the next part of the second half was really a lot more grounded in reality on the one hand, but we still had all this, like, traveling through midnight and, like, there there were yeah. still a lot of folklore elements, but it was just kind of a, yeah, it was a really cool parallel. And I love that it didn't end where I thought it was going to and how it brought everything around. Me too. Um, real quick, speaking of grounded in reality, how ironic was it that when we opened up this second half, the plague came yeah. and <laughs> I, I, there were just, like, so many weird correlations between it and COVID. (laughs) I don't know why. Maybe it was just like fresh in my mind, but like when the bear tells Constantine to hold church services so that the disease can spread because he needs people to die so he can raise the undead army. I was like, oh my God, this is like really hitting too close to home. (laughs) Well, I think we also talked about when we were guests on the Prince Kai fan pod podcast and now that like COVID has happened and we think about books where plagues happen and we're like wow it's weird that like people aren't taking certain precautions so I did I loved how in this book even though it's like 14th century or whatever there still was this kind of like oh yeah bringing people together will spread the disease and like people should stay you know like this idea was still being explored so I also am like super impressed, especially with your research but both of us I feel like our research a couple of times throughout this book given how little I knew about Russian folklore and like Russia in this time period um our research has been really timely to help put some of what we're reading into context so your Chalubi Sasha dual research was incredibly helpful as was your midday midnight folklore research for this half oh right because there's that scene where Lady Midday appears and she gives Sergei heat stroke right yeah 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 and it was just cool to like 
I feel like I was able to appreciate it more and also anticipate some things differently because of what you had shared in your research. And it was just, I was glad that we had done it when we did it. Okay, I'm glad you said that because I was feeling incredibly guilty because I had researched the battle of Kulikovo where Sasha and Shalube like fight in single combat. And the outcome of that was that they both killed each other. And so I felt so bad because I was like, oh my God, I ruined the ending. Well, so the funny thing is, especially with books that still take some fictional liberties, like I had a... I mean, I knew when they said they were going to do the duel, I was like, oh my goodness, this is just like her research and like blah, blah, blah. But I wasn't convinced that they were both going to die. Like I was still, especially with all the like folklore elements, like I was wondering if the bear would get involved somehow or if they would bring him back. And there was that moment where they almost brought him back. And so I like kind of like it helped me anticipate to some extent and make me more nervous about it. But I also like wasn't sure exactly how it was going to play out. I loved that scene where after Sasha dies, Vasya goes to the bear and she knows that he has the power to make the dead rise with Morosko. So like, I think the bear uses the water of life and Morosko uses the water of death, which also appeared in like one of the fairy tales that I researched. I know. Um, (laughs) And I love that Morosko instead says like okay I, I we can do this but just wait a minute and she's he shows her Sasha in the next life and Sasha basically makes the choice to stay dead because he doesn't want to risk his immortal soul yeah he just feels like I I sacrifice my life I'm gonna live with my choice and it was such a nice parallel to what happened with Olga and her baby yeah that one time when Basia made that decision for Olga she was like no you're going to survive and I'm gonna sacrifice your child and she didn't respect Olga's choice. So I really liked that it was like a nice moment of growth for Vasya where she realized that Sasha made this choice and she has to respect it, and she does. And it also gave them the chance to, like, kind of have a goodbye moment because that was what I was really nervous about, too. He went to the duel without saying goodbye to her, and I was like, oh, man, he's going to die. This is not good. <laughs> um, but it did. It felt like growth for Vasya, and it felt true to felt true to everyone's character too like it made sense to me that Sasha wouldn't want to come back and it made sense to me that after everything Vasya has been through that she'd be able to accept that even though it was hard and I agree and we brought back Nightingale someone else instead (laughs) the horse I was so excited when that happened and I did not predict that at all and I like couldn't believe that I had it hadn't even crossed my mind before when we realized that everyone that we had the power to bring people back, that it hadn't even crossed my mind to bring him back. I am so, so glad. That honestly, like, was my favorite part. (laughs) That was, like, the happiest part of the happy ending. It was. It really was. Because, like, I mean, I What does this say about us that we're like, oh, all these people died and all these terrible things happened, but the horse came back to life. (laughs) Well, I just was glad for Vasya because she had such a tough go these past three books I mean this poor poor girl and so I was just glad that like she got her horse back because she really did love him and I just thought that was like a fitting reward for everything she's been through I know the only part of me that was disappointed is just that we didn't get more of him ourselves because he's usually kind of a source of humor and lightness in this in these books but yeah um The other thing that I did not expect was in the second half, there's this scene where Sasha and and Vasya take the road to midnight to try and rescue Vladimir 
But Mm -hmm. um, Lady Midnight betrays them and leads them right into the enemy camp where all the Tartars are. And so Chalube tortures Sasha for information and Basia is like trying to figure out how she can go and rescue him. And she frees the bear to um, have him help her free Sasha. And I did not expect that to happen after like the first half we went to all this trouble to bridle him and then in the second half she freed him again and it was literally it felt like five minutes later because it's yeah. just the pacing of this book <laughs> like it, had he even had he even admitted that he wasn't getting free <laughs> no i don't think so and morosco was gone i mean it was such an interesting choice and i like how it played out over time too because it helped bring in this idea of her as like a third option between this, mm-hmm. like, fight of her brothers. But I also thought it was going to become, like, a weird love triangle thing or something, and I'm glad it didn't go that far. Oh, me too. That would not have been fun. <laughs> and the bear really did help her. They were able to free Sasha, and I think it would have been difficult for her to do what she did without him. Um, but he was still kind of, I mean, like, he was, like, the chaos. He wasn't 100% trustworthy. He did right. what he technically agreed to, but he kept letting things happen or, like, waiting to tell her things until she couldn't do anything about them, including Sasha's death and including the the pregnant woman who was killed as a result of the chaos they were spreading. Yeah. And and that's what's so fascinating because the bear being like a chaos spirit, he revels in that kind of stuff. Like he loves creating chaos. And it was so interesting how I think Sasha was the one who warns her. He was like, the bear wants you to forget yourself. Like he wants you to enjoy yourself whenever you're creating this chaos because he wants you to go mad yeah so it was interesting to see Vasia at certain points like when they were terrorizing the tartar camp she was kind of into it like she was enjoying herself because she was like getting revenge against these people who had caused her so much harm but then like you said when they go to that village and see the pregnant woman that was killed she feels like really ashamed that she let it go so far so we do kind of see these moments where Vasia is like venturing a little bit too far into madness and like luckily is able to pull herself back. Yeah. So what was, was Lady Midnight just mad because instead of like, was the goal to have the brothers getting along or was the goal, I forget now how it all played out because she eventually does come back around and like approves. Mm -hmm. Was it just like she was mad because she had, chosen one brother over the other and she wanted her to yeah that was confusing i think i think she wanted vasia to to unite the demons like the Uh charity whatever they're called and that's how she failed because she really didn't like she was able to bind the bear in lady midnight's view one brother shouldn't be bound like both of them need to be free for them to be for there to be like a balance so I think maybe that's why she was mad. Yeah, it felt like she was, like, mad that they were, like, she was, like, she just switched who was in power, but she kept, like, this mm-hmm. power struggle going, sort of. But I I think this was definitely my favorite book oh, in the series. Sure. I think it came together really well. I just felt really satisfied with a lot of the plot points that were tied up. Yeah. Yeah, I I thought it was a really great end to a to a good series and i love again just love this combination of russian folklore and russian history not only the way it was combined which we've seen in a couple other books like i love that in kingdom of back how it mixed some Mm -hmm. history and some real folklore or you know a real imaginary world but um 
especially because I didn't know anything about, or I knew very little about either. It was fun to do on the research side, and I and I loved how it all like came together and made sense. And I feel like I learned a lot. And I know I learned and so much. Some of the writing was really beautiful yeah. too. Yeah, it wasn't like all amazing. Like some people, I just like can't get over how amazing their writing is. But I there were some things that really stood out to me a lot too. And I loved the end when. Um... Dimitri finally asks Vasya to like fight with him where he finally acknowledges that he needs her and I loved when she confronted him and she was like okay but this is the price of my aid you can't condemn witches to burn you ha- you have to allow people to have both of their faiths like they need to be able to pray to their charities and and keep their dolomites or dolovoids or whatever yeah. but also pray to their christian god as well and i think that really kind of like reflects back on the idea of like balance like you have to have balance for every realm to be happy and i really like sergey as a religious figure because he's still like so well respected by all the other religious folk but he also in a lot of ways is the most open-minded like even though sasha loves his sister and like whatever I feel like he still struggles a lot with how she's like in league with the devils Mm -hmm. versus I think it was Sergey who like basically made a comment like God made all creatures so therefore like his ways are mysterious but what I don't know I like love some of those ideas and felt like it's not an either or these things really can live together Mm -hmm. (laughs) so true and your prediction was right where the firebird lets Vasya ride her finally oh yeah no solo boy though. True. But yes, it was good. And we saw the Firebird become the Firebird again. I think, okay, I'm jumping ahead to something we do later, but if I could see a scene in this book, mm-hmm. I think it would be that, like, kind of first time when they're sowing chaos and the Firebird's flying overhead and, like, fires are flaring and the horses are going nuts and, like, the shadows are jumping and stuff and, like, they're not anticipating it yet. I just, something about that scene. That was a great scene. I think would be really cool to see. Yeah. This is awful, but I honestly think the scene that I want to see is when the bear raises the undead and, like, Olga is trying to get Bassi into the palace. Yeah. I think that would be a good scene, just too violent for me. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it definitely was violent, but I just thought that whole scene with, like, all the dead rising and, like, crowding at the palace gates trying to get inside and, like, Bassia and everyone trying to fight them back. Ooh, it's so scary, but... I like horror movies, so I'd want to see that. And again, part of the thing with what made them so scary, too, it's like not only are they undead, but I love that scene. I know this was in the first half, but where the little boy Mm. was raised from the dead and his mom, like, he looks like the little boy. Like, that's almost the scariest part. Like, it's one thing to fight, like, an enemy that you think of as the enemy. It's another to, like, see someone that you thought died and came back to life. And they didn't do it that much in this scene as far as... Recognizing them, yeah. Yeah, but... So I was just thinking about that, like how much harder that becomes to re-kill someone you thought you lost and appears to be back, but also like isn't really back. And, so and awful. it's happened too in, I guess, book one with um, Dunya. Dunya, Dunya yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Her grandmother. But yeah. Oh, and I also, I loved seeing the mushroom spirit again. <laughs> Grandfather mushroom, he's so cute. Yes. <laughs> um, should we do a rating right now? Sure. We want to rate the series. How many magical horses, mm. horse birds, would you give horse it birds. out of? What should we? How many there were out of ten? Sure, let's do ten. I would do eight. 
I think I would do eight too. I think I'd give book one like a seven and book two an eight and book three a nine. <laughs> I, I feel like it kept getting better for me. Yeah, I agree. Even though I thought it was solidly good at the beginning, but I, as a whole, I loved it even more. Yeah, like the more I started learning about Russian folklore and this, the more I started like following things better, I think that's when I started enjoying it more. Like when I could pick out the Easter eggs that they gave us, just even like Lady Midday, you know, giving Sergei a heat stroke and like being able to recognize that for what it was, like it made it a much more enjoyable read for me. Yeah, and also just the world getting bigger and stuff. Like, part of what we liked about book one, I mean, it was laying the groundwork for a a lot of the later pieces, but remember we were like, oh, like, the prince's, or the emperor's family, or whatever, the the grand prince's family is, like, related to her family? Like, how is that? (laughs) I feel like we were laying the groundwork, but it wasn't, like, quite satisfactory enough, even though it was still, in a lot of ways, a contained story, but I feel like everything did get wrapped up pretty nicely, except we never did go back and see... Her sister and other brothers, which I was hoping we would see. Yeah, that's true. I really thought that Olga's daughter was going to be featured more prominently in this one, and I thought Irina was going to come back, her stepsister. Yeah. At least her niece was, she had a small part, but it was still significant in terms of she was trying to, like, she was communicating with the devils while Vasya was missing for three months. And, like, True. communicating with Olga about, like, yeah, don't send our people to church. And, like, like it was a really small part. But, again, she's a child. And part of me is glad that she didn't get more pulled into, like, this craziness. Because Bassia already lost her childhood in a lot of ways. <laughs> True. Um, how do you feel about the end with Morosco and just, like, where Bassia ended up? Because I think it ends with her going ba- Eventually she was like, I'm going to go back to Baba Yaga and learn from her. And it kind of ended with, like... You have a realm in the winter forest, and I have mine on the curve of a lake. Perhaps we can forge one country in secret, a country of shadows behind and beneath Dimitri's Russia. I think I liked it because it, it, to me it felt like they were a couple, but they also still have their own thing going on, which felt yeah. true to them. They had their independence. <laughs> like, I'm glad they ended up together. They didn't, like, sacrifice their relationship, but I'm also glad she didn't just, like, go live in yep. the winter world and he didn't give up his role either. So I... I actually really liked it. I do, there was one thing I forgot about, though, that I don't feel like was fully addressed, or I at least had questions about. We found out that her great-grandfather was the Sea King. I know, that was my research, actually, for this week. Okay, perfect. (laughs) Then you should talk about that, because I just was like, I just remembered, and I pulled up one story, but um, that was, like, I mean, it was cool because it gave us a reason why she might live a long time and, like, had extra magic and stuff. But I forgot, I when we first read that, I was like, oh, is she going to, like, go? Like, I sort of expected her to be like, no, I want to go meet my great-grandfather. <laughs> like, <laughs> I agree. That was the one part where I was just like, okay, that came out of nowhere. Like, are we going to explain this at all? <laughs> and we never really got an answer. But I did some research to kind of figure out who this sea king was and what he was all about. Well, do you want to tell me about it now or do we want to wait and talk about other stuff in the book? I can share it now. Okay, I'm really curious. Okay, so the Sea King's name was Chermamor, and the only example of Chermamor that I could find as a character was in an epic poem by Alexander Pushkin in 1820. He was also the one who, like, wrote most of these Russian folklore stories. Okay. So he's, like, the Grimm Brothers of Russia or something? Or Hans Christian Andersen yeah, of Russia? Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so the poem is called Ruslan and Ludmilla, and it is... composed of six cantos or songs 
some of which involve this seeking chair memoir. So do you want to okay. do you want me to tell you this nice little story? Yes, I would love it. I'm very curious. <laughs> so the poem opens with a feast given by Prince Vladimir, and he is celebrating the marriage of his daughter Ludmilla to a warrior whose name is Ruslan. But on their wedding night, a strange presence fills the bedroom, there's thunder and lightning, and Ruslan finds his bride is gone. So her father, Vladimir, is very angry that she disappeared. He annuls the marriage, and he promises his daughter's hand to whoever is able to return her safely. Okay, wait. So I'm just, I'm pausing. So she got married and then disappeared. So her dad just was like, that marriage doesn't count. If you find her, you can marry her? Yes, exactly. Okay, okay, okay. I'm following. So Ruslan and three other rivals set off to find the princess. The three other rivals are Rogde, Farloff, and Radmir. So Ruslan, he's traveling and he finds an old man in a cave who tells him that Ludmilla has been abducted by the sorcerer Chernamor. The old man basically says that he, he, he like gives him his life story for some reason. And he's like, oh, you know, I fell in love with a beautiful maiden named Diana and she spurned me and I tried to become a warrior to win her back. And then she rejected him again. So then he decided to learn magical arts instead. And he cast a spell to win this woman, Diana's love. And then he found that she was actually an old crone instead. And so he he rejects her, okay. and then she becomes set on revenge. So he has this, like, side story going on. <laughs> okay, so that's song, that's the first canto. That's song one. In song two, one of the rivals, Rogde, decides that instead of trying to find Ludmilla, he's just going to find Ruslan and kill him instead. So he um, finds a rider, and he attacks him, and then he actually realizes that it's Farloff, one of the other suitors, and not Ruslan. And so an, an old woman appears and she tells Rodge, go this way to find Ruslan. And then she tells Farloff to go to Kiev and like get out of the way. Is this the same old woman from before? Nyena? Yeah. We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> um, so meanwhile, poor Ludmilla wakes up in this chamber with three maidens who are waiting, who are there to serve her. She is in her chamber when she's startled by a hunch it's says a hunched back dwarf approaching her carried by 10 manservants so she freaks out and attacks this person and the dwarf tumbles to the ground and it's actually the wizard chernamore who was coming to visit her and he is like flustered that she attacked him, so he runs away and leaves his hat behind. Okay, I'm trying to keep track of who's who and where everyone is. There's a lot of characters. There's a lot of characters. <laughs> um, back to Ruslan, the original husband. He defeats Rodge, one of the challengers, and leaves him to drown in a river. End of song two. In song three, Chernamore is visited by a flying dragon who turns out to be Nyena. And she pledges her alliance to him in, in exchange for him defeating her ex-lover. Um, okay. So Chernamore then goes to visit Ludmilla and realizes that she's gone because she tried on his hat, which is a magic hat, and it makes you vanish and reappear at will. So Ludmilla's gone. <laughs> <laughs> so is she gone gone or is she just invisible? It doesn't say where she okay. is. It just says that... Chamber Moore went to visit her and she was gone <laughs> with his hat. 
Um, Ruslan is riding around. He gets a bunch of armor. He finds his path blocked by a huge hill emitting strange sounds. Closer inspection reveals the hill is actually a giant slumbering human head. Okay. Ruslan awakens the head, which becomes angered and begins to taunt him. It sticks out his tongue. Ruslan cuts off his tongue and then... Is this giant head attached to a giant body or a normal body or no body? No body. Just a disembodied head. Okay, then the head starts talking. He says that he was once a mighty warrior, the brother of Chernomor, who envied him. He also says Chernomor's magic power lays in his beard. And he says they must secure a sword which has the power to kill both of them. And they can defeat Chernomor by cutting off his beard. Okay. So... So this head knows a lot of things. So, this is so crazy. So they set off. This is him still telling the story. So him and his brother, Chandramore and his brother, this who's now a head, <laughs> they were looking for a sword that, that was rumored to um, be a sword that could defeat both of them. So they were both trying to find the sword, Chandramore and his brother, and then they were arguing over like who was going to keep the sword once they found it. And Chandramore said, okay, why don't we both put our heads to the ground and the sword will go to whoever can hear a sound. This doesn't make any sense. Um, so he basically <laughs> like tricked his brother to like land his head on the ground and then Shamramore cut his brother's head off, which magically remained alive. What a so good that's brother. why um, this disembodied <laughs> head exists. So the head tells Ruslan that he would be grateful if Ruslan uses the sword to defeat Chernomor. But it won't actually kill him? It'll just dismember his head? Well, he has to cut off his beard. Oh, right, right, right. The beard. Okay. How could I forget? <laughs> um, okay, song four. Ratmir, one of the other suitors, is interrupted by a maiden who lures him into a castle. He forgets Ludmilla. And then... Oh, and then Ludmilla is still wandering around invisible, but then she's <laughs> tricked by Chermomor into revealing herself because he takes the form of Ruslan and calls to her in his voice. And then that's the end of song four. Okay, wait, so let's just read. <laughs> so who, where is everybody at the end of song four? So <laughs> Ludmilla's invisible. Ratmir is being detained by a maiden in the castle. The other suitor is dead and drowns in a river, and then the last suitor is off in Kiev. So basically all the suitors are out of the picture, which is great. Okay. So wait, do we know where the magic, the sword that needs to cut off the beard? Or no one knows yet? Ruslan has it now. Oh, Ruslan has it. Okay, okay. Um, When he cut off... Oh, I forgot this part. When he cut off the head's tongue, it turned into a sword. Oh, <laughs> of course. So he has the sword. <laughs> okay. Okay, song five. Ruslan arrives at Chernomor's lair. They trade blows. Chernomor flies off with Ruslan holding onto his beard. For three days they fly with Ruslan <laughs> snipping away at the beard until the bedraggled wizard pleads for mercy and agrees to take him to Ludmilla. She's still hidden because she's like, F this, this is crazy. Finally, um... What does she want through this whole thing? She probably just wants to get out of this... Actually, maybe she just wants to stay invisible and, like, roam around and <laughs> have fun. Um, Ruslan is flailing around with his sword and he knocks the magic hat from her head. So she reappears, but she's in a trance and she can't hear him. And he hears the old man's voice from a distance, the one who ha was having lady trouble... He um, tells Ruslan to return Ludmilla to Kiev because she will awaken there. Okay. And that's where the other suitor is hanging out, right? Right. So Ruslan sets off 
carrying his bride and Chernamore, who's pleading for mercy, he encounters the severed head again, who is content that he has been avenged and dies in peace. Oh, good. He, oh, he, Ruslan rests at a stream and meets the other suitor, Ratmir, who explains that he met his true love in a castle and no longer wants Ludmilla, so they part as friends. Oh, good. <laughs> and then Naina appears to Farloff, who was in Kiev. She tells him that... Wait, which one is she? Is she the old one? Oh, Naina is the woman. Yeah, okay. the crone. Yeah. Okay. So she tells Farloff where Ruslan is. He, Farloff rides to find Ruslan encamped, and... He stabs Ruslan. Farloff stabs Ruslan, and Ruslan is lying unconscious and dies. Ooh. Oh no. Alright, that's the end of song, song five. How many songs are there? Six. This is the last one. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so, Chernamore awakens, and he's very happy because he sees that Ruslan is dead. Farloff, the other suitor, returns Ludmilla to Vladimir, her, her father, and he's initially happy that she's back, but then is upset because she still hasn't woken up from her trance. Finally, the old man who is who was in love with Reina finds Ruslan's body and resurrects him with magical waters. Of course. He also gives Ruslan a ring, which will break Ludmilla's spell and bring her back to life. But unfortunately, the city of Kiev is under siege, and so he says that he has to first save the city from the attackers. That's nice of him. So Ruslan returns to Kiev, leads the warriors to victory. He touches Ludmilla's face with the ring. She awakens. Vladimir agrees to let them get married again. And then Ruslan forgives Farloff, the man who stabbed him, and Chernamore, the wizard. So both of them live. Wow. He's a pretty... I guess he got everything he wanted, so he was just at peace now. Very forgiving yeah. guy. Yeah, so that was um, that epic poem summed up in 15 minutes right there. (laughs) So I found a different story about the Sea King. Oh, good, because I was like, this doesn't even make any sense. There's no sea. (laughs) So the one I found was called The Sea King and Vasilisa the Wise. Oh, good. This probably is going to make more sense. It's still, well, it's a little bit easier to follow, I think, because there's fewer songs, or at least in the version (laughs) I found. So... There's this king who finds an injured eagle and nurses it back to health with the promise of getting great riches in return. So once the eagle recovers, he flies him to three kingdoms in the sky. The first two are owned by the eagle's sisters and their husbands, who each give him an extravagant casket. So the first one's made of iron and the second one's made of silver. And the third is owned by the eagle his wife and his mother, and there he's given a third casket and warned never to trade it away because it's priceless, but it's very plain. (laughs) So he has three caskets, a beautiful, extravagant iron one, a silver one, and then this plain one that is supposedly priceless. Okay, I don't know why you need three caskets, but... (laughs) So then the king is given a boat to take him home and warned not to sleep in it, So, of course, he falls asleep and wakes up on a mysterious island where he is visited by the Sea King, who promises to bring him home in exchange for one of the caskets. Oh. And the king is like, I don't want to get rid of either of these two awesome caskets, so I'll give him the plain one. Oh, no. That's the priceless one. I know. The Sea King... Claims it contains the soul of a member of the Tsar's king or the king's kingdom whose home he doesn't know is kept. 
That's true. And the king is like, I know every person in my kingdom and every house they live in, so whatever. <laughs> so eventually he makes it home, and he finds out that his wife has given birth to a baby boy. And he realizes that that's the soul that's in the plain casket that he gave oh, away. Oh, crap. And he opens up the iron casket, which contains a countless number of bulls, cows, horses, rams, and sheep. And he opens the silver casket, which contains a splendid garden that appears around his castle, but both obviously are less important to him than the soul of the prince. (laughs) Yeah. So years pass, and the boy grows up, and he becomes Ivan. The Terrible? Is that who it is? I don't know. Okay. His name's (laughs) Ivan. There's always an Ivan, right? Um, And so the Sea King sends for him. And Ivan agrees to go and travel to the Sea King's underwater kingdom. But on his way there, he sees 13 white doves that shed their feathered dresses and become Mm -hmm. beautiful maidens. And he's enchanted by how beautiful the youngest one is. And her name is Vasilisa the Wise. So he steals her dress so that he can get a moment of alone time with her while her sisters fly away. And Vasilisa reveals that the Sea King is her father and is angrily waiting for him. So he finishes traveling to the underwater kingdom and he, like, gets all these tasks that he has to complete in an impossibly short amount of time or be killed. You know, it's one of those, Mm -hmm. like... And basically, he is able to complete all the tasks, but only with the help of Vasilisa the Wise. And the final task is to pick which one of the Sea King's 13 daughters he will marry while their faces are covered so they look identical. Oh, no. Once again, Vasilisa helps him out, and he picks her all three times. I guess he has to do this test three times. So (laughs) the two are allowed to marry. And then Ivan's growing homesick, so he and Vasilisa escape the underwater kingdom only to be pursued by the Sea King's servants. So they trick the servants twice using different magical disguises. And the third time, the Sea King himself is pursuing him. So Ivan remembers how his dad saved that eagle guy. So they, like, Mm. call on the eagle to escape the Sea King and fly away back to Ivan's native kingdom, where they have a feast and live happily ever after. (laughs) Wow. I mean, that was definitely more coherent and made more sense than my story. (laughs) But in neither case do we see Baba Yaga... Meeting the Sea King and having twins, so... I missed that part. Maybe there'll be a short story, side story one day from Catherine Arden to... Oh, I hope so. That would be great. Fill in all the pieces. I want to see the origin story. It is so interesting that, I mean, just to see certain elements that reappear in a lot of these Russian folklores, like this idea, like birds must be really important in Russia. And strong. They can carry um, lots of people, apparently. Yeah, and they're like good to make deals with. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Again, I mean, we, I guess Ivan and Vasilisa, we've noted before are like common archetypes, but they're always a little bit different in each story at the same time. And yeah, but cool. I love it. Okay, so now we have, like, a little bit more backstory. (laughs) (laughs) We've we've made it for our own. We get some idea of who the Sea King is. You know what we have to do? What? We have to think of a fan name. (gasps) Oh, yeah. Mm. I haven't thought of one. Can we be Charity? Can we just be, like, the Faithful? Oh, I like that. Or can we be, uh... Uppers? Oh, I did. That's actually what I did research before I got curious about the Sea King. Ooh, about the vampires? Yeah. Ooh, tell me. So, I mean, it's just interesting because vampires are basically a myth in every part of the world, but they're all a little bit different. So, I guess there's multiple species of vampire in, like, Slavic tradition, but 
the uppers in our book are U-P-Y-R, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they're the most common vampire species in Russian lore. And it's an incredibly bloodthirsty vampire that typically prefers to prey first on children and then on their parents. They have teeth like iron that they use to gnaw on anything that's in their way, like when their hands are trapped in the frozen earth during Russia's freezing winters. Like Polish vampires, sunlight doesn't harm them. So I know like in, I don't know if it's Western tradition or what, but a lot of the vampires that I know about can't be in sunlight, so that doesn't apply to these. And this is interesting. It says they usually wander between noon and midnight. Wow. In this book, it felt like they couldn't come out until it was dark. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, when in attempting to destroy the beast, it is said that one should hook thread to one of their buttons so that it can be tracked back to its lair. And once mm. discovered, the creature should be drenched in holy water and then staked in the heart. But you should only strike it once because if you stab it twice, it will bring it back to life and it'll be even, oh. it'll be like angrier. <laughs> it'll be even Whoa. more fearsome than it was before. In some regions, I guess, it was thought that you could only kill it if you chopped off its head or burned it to ash, which are two of the ways they are dealing with them in this book. So mm-hmm. That's scary. But it was interesting that there are all these other vampire regions, or uh, species, I guess. So, like, there's this yeah. Polish, which is Upior, U-P-I-O-R, or U-P-I-E-R, that seems kind of similar. It also, like, rests at night and prays during, between noon and midnight. But it has a barbed tongue and also really loves blood and it doesn't just like feed on blood when it's hungry it sleeps in it drinks it and literally explodes with it if it's staked and to kill this one you have to either stake it in the heart or decapitate it but it's said that you can protect yourself from this version of the vampire by mixing vampire blood with flour baked into a kind of blood bread i guess And then do you eat it? Yeah, you eat it. And I don't know, like, does that only last for, like, 24 hours? Like, do you have to eat it every day? Or is it, like, you eat it once (laughs) and you're good? (laughs) Make my daily batch of blood bread. Um, And then the Oopor is a Belarusian vampire that's known for riding horses and has the ability to transform into other forms. And there's another one in the Ukraine, the Oop. Beer, U-P-I-R, which is pretty similar to the upper that we've read about, except it consumes large amounts of fish. I don't know why why it does that, but that's what it does. I mean, that's better than humans. And this article that I was looking at was talking about the Netflix show Hemlock Grove, which I haven't seen, and it's also based on a book, I think, with the same name. But I guess that show has more of the um, Slavic tradition, Eastern European vampires Mm. in it based on these ideas i've only seen like the first couple episodes of that show or at least they appear in the show i think i don't know if it's a central part or not but it is funny because you hear about killing vampire like they're different it's kind of like you have to know what kind of vampire is chasing you because in some you'll want to like stake them and some you're like safe in your home unless you invite them in and some sunlight will protect you and some garlic is good i read something about salt too because we know salt is always good, but if you, I think it's just if you're being chased by a demon in general, if you drop salt, they have to stop Ooh. and count every kernel of salt so it'll like delay them or something. So, Ooh. so it's just funny to be like, it's interesting that we have, like, we all, ha- or not all, but so many cultures have some version of like coming back from the dead, vampire like whatever, but they also all have different rules for 
how to engage. So even if you found a vampire in real life, <laughs> hopefully you get the right set of rules. <laughs> it's kind of like bears. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like there's different tactics for dealing with different bears. Should you run, hide, play dead, or fight back? <laughs> I was looking up Uper while you were reading that, and there was one that just in Google it says, how do I become an Uper? <laughs> and? You don't want to know. <laughs> I did read something, I think it was about, um, it was like a Romanian legend that if you want to find one of these vampires, you need a seven-year-old boy and a white horse, and the boy should be dressed in white, placed on the horse, and then just like let them loose in a graveyard at midday. For like an offering. Watch where the horse wanders, and whichever grave is nearest the horse when it finally stops is obviously the vampire's grave. (laughs) That poor kid. (laughs) At least it's like midday instead of midnight. Like, I'm sure it would still be creepy, but it feels less creepy. I don't think it's a, um, it doesn't say that the boy will be killed. It just says wherever they stop will be where the vampire is. Oh, okay. Well, that's good at least. But who knows? (laughs) This also, part of why I was kind of curious about these vampire traditions is because of the series we've chosen for our next Yeah, do you want to talk about it? Yeah, I'm really excited. Let's do it. Okay, so we are reading, I think it's a duology, by Justina Ireland. The first book is called Dread Nation, and let me just read the back. Okay. Jane McKean was born two days before the dead began to walk the battlefields of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, derailing the war between the states and changing the nation forever. In this new America, however, the battle for survival is as political as it is personal, and the restless dead, it would seem, are the least of her problems. So to me, that sounds like maybe zombies. Some undead something comes back to life, right? Yeah. (laughs) And we've got some, like, historic American elements, probably. Yep, mixed with fantasy. And I feel like the um, most recent book hasn't been out super, super long. Let's see. So the second one is called Deathless Divide. Oh, no, it was published February 4th, 2020. So it is relatively new. So yeah, I'm excited. This looks great. It kind of reminds me of like um, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I haven't read anything about Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Okay, it's it's like um, <laughs> I, I think Is that it's a common thing. Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. It's about like characters in like Jane Austen's novels that become like zombie hunters. <laughs> Wait, that's hilarious! I love it. Yeah, it's amazing. And I like this too because Jane is a woman, and I love stories about women especially if you're talking about history I don't know I think there's gonna be a lot of layers to this one so I agree I think it's gonna be a fantastic next read and I think it's also important because we were we've been taking kind of um, a hard look at some of the books we've read and we are really going to make a concerted effort to incorporate more books written by people of color um, people from different backgrounds so this is kind of our first step into um making that a reality so we're going to be kind of adjusting the books that we've selected for the rest of this year and going forward and just making sure we have a lot of voices represented her um dedication is that what it's called at the beginning Mm -hmm. um not to spoil but it says for all the colored girls i see you oh that's great but yeah i'm excited this novel is everything a tightly plotted thriller an undead actioner a singing historical critique and the heartbreaking story of one indomitable young woman's fight for survival in a post-civil war america where our country's twin sins racism and colonialism refuse to die Hmm. dread nation does for reconstruction what hamilton did for the revolution oh i love that 
So, yeah, I'm really excited for this one. And before I forget, we'll read up to chapter 20 for, we'll take a week off, but when we come back, and that chapter is called, In Which I Meet a Questionable Man of God and a Kind Madam. (laughs) Oh, I like that there are chapter titles and that they sound really interesting. You know, I'm a sucker for that. Yeah, and they also have a, like, vignette at the beginning. So the vignette for this chapter is, One of the biggest challenges here at Rose Hill is boredom and making sure that the people here don't fall into vice. Ooh. Oh, I so, love that. Because that just, like, helps with the world building so much, too. I know. I'm real. I'm actually, like, super excited for this me one. Me, too. I can't wait. All right. Um, anything else? You needed to tell me a joke? Oh. Okay. Um, I got a joke today from one of our friends, Josh. Oh, great. Um, So I'm going to share this. Okay. What do you do if you have a seaweed addiction? Um, go to Seaweed Anonymous. I don't know. (laughs) Seek help. (laughs) Uh, That's a good one, actually. Seek help. (laughs) Thanks, Josh. That was a good one. Uh, The aquarium lover in me really appreciated that. Um, if you guys want to get in touch with us, you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at mnktalkya. So brush up on your undead folklore to round up this book and get ready for Dread Nation. Well, I can't wait. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.